means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Please pray with me. Father, the words we've just heard are very familiar. We know this story. Please help us now to see how it is our story. Uh, Please help us to listen with open ears and grant us fresh understanding. Uh, Please speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mistaken identity can be very, very, very embarrassing. And not just for the people involved. Sometimes bystanders can be caught up and feel the embarrassment. Ask my children. They know all about feeling the embarrassment of their father. They might say that I am a master of mistaking identity. I do remember, however, on one occasion when I wasn't doing the mistaking I was the one who was being identified wrongly. That still stays clear in my mind uh, shows just how much embarrassment was experienced on that day. It was New Year's Day 1983 in the town of Tenderfield up near the Queensland border. I was on a country placement during my ministry training and I was filling in for the minister who was on holidays. Each year they had a special celebration on New Year's Day and so I went down to the local showground and helped man the stall that the church had. I wasn't there very long when I received an unexpected, overwhelming country welcome. A woman came up from behind and gave me this huge, warm, affectionate embrace and kissed me. She discovered I was not the man that she thought I was. (laughs) There were red faces all around. Mistaken identity can be very embarrassing but it's not always laughable. Throughout the week before Jesus' crucifixion, the vast majority of people misconstrue Jesus' identity. Not all, but the large majority. 
So not the blind and the lame and the children in the temple, and not, not Simon the leper, and not that unnamed woman at his dinner party in Bethany, but just about everybody else got it wrong. His friends understood bits and pieces, but didn't get the full picture of who he was. The chief priests and the elders, well, they just refused to listen. They have falsely labelled him, and now they have falsely nailed him. Pilate got it partly right when he ordered that the charge on the sign on the cross should be written the King of the Jews. Because Jesus was the King of the Jews. He was the King of the Jews from birth. He was the chosen king, God's long-promised king, the Messiah. But he was much, much more. Then we see onlookers and passers-by who thought like that Jesus was just like all the other thieves and murderers and insurrectionists that they'd seen nailed to crosses by the Romans before. They shake their heads and show that they are taken in by the false witnesses and the fake news that the chief priests have been peddling. There is some semblance of truth when they talk about the temple. But they fail to see that the temple that he is talking about is his body. Is his body. And even though it has been beaten, bruised, broken and now hangs bloodied and will soon be buried it would be rebuilt it would be resurrected in three days they were badly mistaken they were missing the mark how embarrassing their taunt save yourself highlights their mistake he has done nothing wrong to require saving. He's in no need of saving. He is indeed the Son of God, but they don't realise it. They are in close proximity to everything that's going on. They are in close proximity to Jesus. But they are so mistaken about his true identity. I wonder if they ever realised how embarrassing that that could turn out to be. The chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders continue to ridicule. They had mocked him the evening before. Early in the morning they joined with the crowds to mock him and it's as though they haven't even had time to draw breath but they're continuing to mock and ridicule him as the afternoon approaches. There is also a semblance of truth in their words. He saved others. Did they actually believe that? They are so wrong when they declare he can't save himself. The truth is, he won't save himself. He won't save himself because he's already decided that in Gethsemane. He's decided that he is going to submit to the Father's will. He is going to do what God wants. He is going to lay down his life. If he doesn't die, 
if his blood isn't poured out. There is no hope of anyone being saved from sin and death. He won't save himself. He can, of course, physically save himself if he wants, but he won't come down from the cross because he doesn't want to take from us the chance to be raised to life with him. This is not about self-interest on Jesus' part. Far from it. The priests, however, can't see beyond their self-interest. They can't see that this is submission to God the Father. And so they can't see the possibility of grace and love and forgiveness reigning even in the face of sin and death. They mock his claim to be a king because they think that authority can only come with power, displays of power and force. They are so like Pilate at this point. They have no idea whatsoever of the power of love, the exquisite power of God's love. They have seen miraculous feats, but not believed. They boldly claim that they will believe if he comes down from the cross, but that is not the case. It is not true. He will remain on the cross, he will die, he will be buried, and he will do that far better thing of coming back to life, being raised from the dead. But on Sunday, we will see that even then, they will not believe. They will bribe guards, they will spread fake news, they will continue to deny the truth, continue to deny his true identity, and in so doing, they are defying the living God. These men are not doubters, but defiers. They are not God-fearers, not God-seekers, despite all their religiosity. At this point, they are absolutely godless. Centuries before, in Egypt, the Pharaoh arrogantly defied God. Pharaoh, who had many gods, including the sun god Ra, he maintained hard-hearted defiance even when God blackened the sky for three days. Darkness is soon going to come here for three hours in the middle of the day. But they too will remain defiant. The darkness and the hardness of their hearts will remain. They will not let God love them. They will not let God get near. They will not let God love them. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants. He does, of course, trust God. And his trust will be justified. But this cup will not be taken away. God wants him and will raise him. However, God also wants us. He wants us. He wants all people. 
to have a way back to him, a way back to their true home, a way to personally experience the power of love and the joy of grace. So he will die. He did die. Today is a sad day because there are still those who are defiers. We have a choice to either defy or to trust. Trust even in the darkness when all seems lost. We're going to sing again. We're going to sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And as we do, as you listen to these words, as you sing these words, do you get the feeling that I do that there is more than this? There is more than darkness on this day. Our second Bible reading is from... Matthew 27, verses 45 to 55. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shavakthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with them who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were watching there from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. In the last couple of years, Cass and I have had our credit cards hacked a couple of times, and on one occasion I've had my credit card stolen. On these occasions, I've feared identity theft. It is so easy for people to gather information about us and steal our identity. They can gather information from, from paper sources, electronic sources. And we hear from time to time about people who amass these massive debts and don't realise it because somebody has taken their identity. Identity theft leaves you fearful, vulnerable and indebted. But let's go back to the crucifixion. There are strange things happening there that day. The sky turns black for three hours in the middle of the day. That's a bit weird. Then there is a cry of abandonment from Jesus. And those around, some who mishear, 
think, well, we should wait for the prophet Elijah to come. Yes, he's been dead for centuries, but we should wait. That's a bit weird. At the moment of Jesus' final breath, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from the bottom. No, not the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. Then the earth itself seems to be the first to respond to the death of this innocent man as it too is torn apart. This is weird. And it gets weirder. There are reports of graves opening and people rising from the dead. What is going on here? What is going on here? Some of those who are closest to the events, the centurions and the guards, despite their terror, despite their terror, somehow see this as confirmation that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Words had not convinced them before, but now this earth-shattering death convinces them. Their eyes are open, their hearts and minds are open to a new way of thinking. Others stay at a distance, watching, among them many women. They're at a distance dis- at this point, but soon they too will be up close eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the risen Son of God. What is going on here? I want to suggest that it is a case of identity theft, not one that leaves us vulnerable, fearful and indebted, but but the opposite, leaves us confident, loved and free. I want you to imagine, if you will join me in my imaginings for a few moments, that my right hand is me and that the ceiling of the church is God. Now, left to my own devices, there is no way, no way I can get close to God. It's an insurmountable problem. But it's not my only insurmountable problem. I want you to now imagine that this book, this book is a record, a catalogue of all my sins, past, present and future. A catalogue of the times that I have disregarded God, forgotten God, defied God, doing what I wanted when I knew perfectly well it's not what he wanted. The times I've been spiteful, the times that I've said harsh things, the times that I have lied, the times that I have denied, the times that I've caused pain to others around me by the way I act and the way I try to manipulate situations so that I look good. All the times I've been big-headed and pig-headed. All the times that I've cheated 
and walk past people in need. In short, all the times that I've failed to love God and to love others as I love myself. Now, in reality, this book is far too skinny to to represent that truthfully. But still, you can see it it provides an impenetrable barrier between me and God. I need God's forgiveness. He is the one that I have offended. I need his forgiveness. But but I can't earn his forgiveness. I, I don't deserve his forgiveness. I'm left vulnerable, fearful, indebted. Imagine with me, if you will, that my left hand is Jesus. There is no uh, barrier between him and God. And he, being the son of God, is quite capable of rising to be with his father. There is nothing that separates him from the father. He is the spotless lamb of God, the only truly innocent, totally innocent person to have walked this earth. This is a mind-blowing thing. This is what happens when Jesus is on the cross at the point of darkness. At the point of darkness, God allows Jesus to steal my identity and to take it upon himself. The one who has no sin takes all my sin. But not just mine. He he takes your identity as well. He doesn't ask permission. He just does it. And not just you and me, but everyone who has ever lived or ever will live. He who is without sin becomes sin for us at this point in the darkness God unleashes his punishment on all of that sin he unleashes it on the one who doesn't deserve it the only one who doesn't deserve it it's like God figuratively turns his back on his son For all the times we've turned our backs on him. And now, what is separating me from God? What is in the way of me being loved by God? Nothing. What a gift. And the beauty of the gift is that three days later, when Jesus is resurrected, it shows that that has all been totally dealt with. What a gift. Who would have thought that identity theft could be a gift? 
However, like all gifts, they need to be received, don't they? They need to be accepted. I wonder if you have received and welcomed and accepted this gift with joy and thanksgiving. Or is there still still a heavy weight, still a darkness that separates you from God? Today is only Good Friday for those who have understood and welcomed God's gift of grace, God's lavish, undeserved favour. This is Good Friday for those who have abandoned themselves, their identity to Jesus, the identity thief, so that they can share his identity of being a child of the living, loving God. If you haven't done so, why not make this Good Friday the best Friday by abandoning yourselves and embracing Jesus, accepting the gift of grace with open hands and open hearts. What have you got to lose? Vulnerability, fearfulness, indebtedness? What have you got to gain? Love, grace, forgiveness, freedom, life, life. Please pray with me. Father, we marvel at the lengths that you would go to love us. Please, please help us all to let you love us, to let you give and forgive. Amen.